Hey, it's Stephen Henderson. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk with James Tatum of the Citizens Research Council about Detroit's endless cycle of chasing development with incentive packages. We give away lots of future taxes in order to inspire people to invest in the city. Is that the right way to grow the economy? And if not, what are the other things we should be doing? To discuss all of this, we've got James Tatum here. He is the director for the Detroit Bureau of the Citizens Research Council. James, welcome to Detroit Today. Hello, Stephen. Thank you for having me. So let's first start, uh, just start with a, 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 a primer on a CRC, uh, what you guys do and uh, how closely you pay attention to things uh, like what cities are doing to try to spur development. Well, we pay close attention. Uh, we have to because our job is to, you know, confer the details of policy decisions so that they can make a decision either at the ballot box or, you know, it, when there are communications with elected leaders that they can make, an, you know, an informed decision. So we follow these issues closely. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, tax incentives in general, why they are seen as an important tool for economic growth, and why cities like Detroit seem to be caught in what I have described as an endless cycle of chasing developers with these incentives. So mayors and city councils don't have the same powers and responsibilities as, say, the president or the chairman of the Federal Reserve, and so they can't uh, affect economic conditions in the same you know, broad way. And so mainly their efforts are directed toward real estate development, and most prominently with respect to how taxes are applied to that real estate development. You know, the debate in Detroit is, is not new. It is not unique to Detroit. You can have the same conversation in Chicago, Detroit, and New Orleans, and especially these cities that have had you know, quite a bit of post-industrial decline. Part of what is common amongst them all is, you know, you have these somewhat worsened economic conditions, but then you also have a high tax rate. And often these elected leaders who are assessed on their ability to make employment opportunities available to the citizens, uh, they use tax abatements to reduce the differential between their cities and maybe nearby jurisdictions or jurisdictions across the country that maybe can offer what you could call a fair deal between the services that are offered and a tax rate that's levied. Yeah. So if I'm a taxpayer in Detroit, which, of course, I am in real life, um, why shouldn't I see this as a transference of capital from me to developers who have a lot more money than I do and who have not really had occasion to, to invest in the city for a really long time in the way that people who have been here for a long time have. Is that is that the wrong way to think about these things? I, I don't know that it is. It's more so the question of once you look at it that way, is it worth it? You know, it's sometimes hard to capture what the ultimate effect of these tax abatements are. And I know this certainly annoys people when you have an expert on and they say, well, it depends. But it does depend on the context and it does depend on whether people think it's worth it because part of what you want is not only for the project itself to do well, but you want for there to be positive spillover effects that, you know, somebody who comes down to District Detroit, for example, they shop, they, they go to a Lions game, but then maybe they eat out nearby as well. So, so is there a point, though, that we reach when we do this where you can ease off the idea of these incentives. In other words, 
okay, we've got a city that has been the victim of disinvestment for a really long time. Now we're trying to capitalize on on new interest in the city. So maybe we need to spark that with these incentives, get people to be more interested uh, with these tax incentives. Is the goal, though, or is a reasonable goal that we would reach a point where we don't need as many of these incentives or maybe don't need them at all? In other words, uh, does all of this investment eventually make the market healthy enough to be able to do some of these projects without these big asks. Yes, that's what you intend. You want at a certain point for, I suppose you could call the civic assets, the other elements of the city itself, you know, its proximity to an international border, uh, its proximity to other suppliers, for example, to be what incentivizes and attracts business to develop. With that said, you know, so long as the city has a higher tax rate, substantially higher tax rate than nearby jurisdictions, this will likely continue. You know, I know there's currently a proposal put forward by the mayor for what is called a split rate tax, which would potentially lower taxes on development. But until Detroit has some type of remediation of its tax levy, uh, every developer will seek these incentives, likely. Uh, They'd be, in a way, foolish not to. Uh, And if, if... If we reach that point, how do we change the behavior? In other words, how do we pivot from fronting the idea, as many developers do and many politicians do, of these tax incentives as the the, the way to leverage these developments uh, to a place where we say, "Look, this is this is a great opportunity for you as a developer to be part of the economic." Uh, growth here in the city, and we're not going to do that. How does, how does that happen? And have we seen it happen, I guess, in, in any city that does this? It's ultimately a political decision. And that are either come from the mayor or council members themselves, or maybe uh, citizen pressure may bring that to bear. Um, one thing that people should consider is the assortment of abatements that are offered, the assortment of ways in which taxes are I suppose you could say artificially lowered for developers. You know, there's industrial facilities tax abatements. There's um, obsolete uh, facilities rehabilitation abatements. Maybe narrow the scope and context with which those abatements are awarded. You know, maybe projects where there's a brownfield element. In other words, you have a plot of land that needs some serious remediation, potentially because of pollution, offered in that narrow case, but maybe not others. And... One way the city can maybe ease the cost of doing business is, you know, there's something that a lot of people don't think of, what's called a paperwork tax. You know, if you think about even a citizen, forget a business, all the paperwork you have to fill out for certain benefits, unemployment benefits and whatnot, and that there's a tax to that. Mm-hmm. And if you ease that for people and businesses, that would also make the city more attractive. Uh, I'm talking with uh, James Tatum. He is the director for the Detroit Bureau of the Citizens Research Council. We're talking specifically about the Future of Health Project, which is a $3 billion investment that is proposed for the new center area, which is around Henry Ford Hospital, the new Pistons Training Facility, and uh, some some uh, organizations, uh, some other organizations that are in the area, including Michigan State University. We're 
talking about the idea of the incentives that get attached to these kind of projects in the city of Detroit. We've seen this many times before. The stadiums that we've built in downtown District Detroit, the neighborhood that the Illich organization plans to build around Little Caesars Arena, uh, the new Hudson's site uh, that Dan Gilbert is building in the middle of downtown. They all Uh, include these kinds of incentive packages. We're talking about why Detroit seems to have to do this in order to sustain the investment that we've seen kick up in the last 10 or 15 years here, and whether we ever reach a point that we don't need those incentives, that we can attract that kind of investment without the giveaways. We want to hear from you as well uh, during the conversation. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation uh, that way, uh, James, I do want to want to get get to this question of um, uh, of the cost of these things to a community, of the cost of these things to a city. This is a city that is always struggling for enough revenue to provide services to the citizens who live here. Uh, when we give away uh, tax revenue or or don't collect it, that makes it harder on the city to, to, to provide those services. I guess part of the argument here is that, well, if you give away that tax money in order to in order to attract new investment in the city, it will pay off in other ways. It'll pay off in, in jobs. It will pay off in people who have those jobs paying more in income tax to uh, to the city. But we never really sit and analyze that cost-benefit ratio in, in specificity. We never say, well, this does pay off because we have X, Y, and Z. Uh, I, I wonder if you believe these things balance out in, in the end, that, that the, the tax incentives that we're giving away are made up by the benefits that we get from this investment and including uh, the tax revenue that we would generate from projects that otherwise wouldn't get done. You know, part of it is it's, it's hard to know what the end result of these tax incentives are. So it's hard to measure them in any case. And the projections put forward by developers, I don't want to say they're dishonest because that's not what I mean. I mean, they, they, they aim to put their best face forward the same reason you don't show up to a date disheveled and, and unshaven. <laughs> With that said, you know, if we don't have a record of how many jobs were created, how many of them went to Detroiters, it's hard to evaluate those programs. It doesn't mean that there aren't studies out there that people can rely on. For example, there was a study done specifically on industrial facilities tax uh, abatements done by Laura Reese and her, her co-authors escaped me at the moment, but she's a researcher at Michigan State University. And what that research found was Yes, they're effective in some instances in that they increase the value of industrial property and this positive spillover effects for uh, commercial and residential property. But when you consider foregone revenue, as you noted, that maybe you know it, there's not the bang for the buck there, that maybe there could be another means that would produce more for the city. And you already know this, Stephen, but you know, to, for people to consider, the tax abatements don't directly cost the city in, in the sense that cash leaves the city coffers. It's more so that they've lost out in revenue. And right. if, 
if you're really nerdy and you want to check this out, it's <laughs> it's not the whole of what is lost, so to speak, but in the city's audited financial statements, you can find an accounting of what was foregone by the city due to tax abatements, and that was about $30 million. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with James Tatum. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Our guest right now is James Tatum. He's the director for the Detroit Bureau of the Citizens Research Council, talking about tax incentive packages. We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Let's go first to Munir in Detroit. Munir, what's on your mind? Good morning, Stephen. Hey. Um, we look at like tax incentives. Our biggest problem is resident. Uh, our resident uh, residency is low. So we don't have enough property taxes coming in. Um, I think we should be looking at incentives for long-term partnership. So let's say if we offer a large tax abatement, then maybe after five to 10 years of that project, maybe we should get, um, if you know that project is producing um, consistent revenue, five, you know, two, four, five, six, seven percent of that inc- uh, of that revenue going to uh, line items like Detroit Public Schools or um, public safety. Mm-hmm. And that will incentivize better, um, you know, uh, a more attractive place to live. Yeah. And also uh, it locks in security for these uh, commercial properties as well. Um, and then at some point in time, as the residency builds, yeah, you, you may not need to offer tax incentives or the tax incentives won't seem as uh, as much of a deep cut because you have revenues coming from a normal stream like uh, property taxes. Right. Which, you know, we don't, right. We're not getting where Muneer, we, where we should. Muneer, in a, in a way, what you're saying is fix the city's actual problems and you wouldn't necessarily – Need uh, some of the some of the investment that you're getting from the outside, uh, and and people would not maybe even be seeking that kind of abatement for for those investments. Uh, James, I wonder if this is something that we've seen other cities try to pursue with some success. It's an alternative way to do this to to invest heavily in the people and the communities that make up a city as a way of making it a, a healthier economic environment for people to be able to invest in in the first place. You know, I, I'd say most cities, most mayors and city councils are interested in quality of life improvements because, you know, people tend to want to live, work and play in the same area. And there's been efforts by this mayor and this city council to do that. With that said, you, you know, the real problem is the city has to find a way to ameliorate the tax burden that it levies. To put into context, the city's general fund, the kind of primary bank account, is $1.3 billion. Of that amount, $145 million comes from property tax. Property tax is about the fourth most important revenue. It would probably be better to find some way to reduce that levy, and then they can re- uh, reduce their reliance on tax abatement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Munir, really appreciate the call and the thoughtful questions. Let's go next to Robert in Detroit. Robert, welcome to the show. Good morning, Stephen. Thank hey. you. Sure. Um, as far as the Henry Ford project goes, I think it's good. Henry Ford has at least finished the developments that they proposed, unlike some other large developers. <laughs> but I think Detroit has somewhat of an over-reliance on these mega-development projects. 
I think uh, city council can do or the entire city hall can do a better job of deciding where they want development to occur and to encourage smaller developers to do that. So if you look around, you see a lot of, you know, I'm, for example, right now near Brightmore, there are new houses built in the middle of a block in Brightmore mm-hmm. where there are no other houses. And what if the city uh, instead said, you know what, instead of building there, we would like you to build, you know, a two story commercial building in this area because we want this area to be the new live work play uh, development. Right. So by having these smaller, you know, a patchwork of smaller developers that instead of doing their own individual projects, they kind of all come together in one large one. I think we could maybe not only get rid of some of those tax incentives, but also create the city that we can live, work, and play in, and to the nearest point, uh, increase that residency. Okay. Yeah, very good. Uh, Robert, those are are great points. Uh, James, uh, I'll give you a chance to respond. You know, the the unfortunate fact is Detroit is 142.9 square miles. It's a city built for 2 million people. It has about 625 as of the last census estimate, not the official census. And that decline has been uneven. There's no perfect way, I think, to architect where development should occur. And I think you would find citizens very upset if you were to tell them your neighborhood or your area is not viable. We want to direct people away from it. I don't want to say that every developer has the best plan when they come in, but they've likely done market studies. There is a reason why they have chosen that location. And I don't want to say trust in them. But I don't know if there is a way that the city can tell each developer in a really coherent manner, build here and only here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Again, Robert, really appreciate the call and the comments. Uh, Let's go next to Luis in Detroit. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, Steve. Hey. How's everything going? Good. Um, So I'm good, good. Um, So the the old uh, discussion about uh, helping the rich or helping the wealthy it, while you know the poor people are still struggling it's something that we continue to go over and over um henry ford is a nonprofit, and i support everything that they do and i support you know their mission and, and whatever we can do for them in the city mm-hmm. but the detroit pistons and michigan state university have a lot of money they're very wealthy and healthy organizations that should be able to pay for their own stuff um, when you talk about investment in the city of Detroit, yes, there is lots of people that would, you know, pay lots of money to go there, you know, to whatever is built there. But at the same time, uh, these are people that are also going to drive away. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been in Detroit nine years and I came, one of, one of the funny reasons why I came there was because I was escaping traffic. And it's funny, every single time there is a game, there is an event downtown, I find myself going in the opposite direction of everyone. <laughs> and I see that everyone is going in the city, but leaving the city. But leaving to go so, home, yeah. Exactly. So, And when we talk about jobs, these are not necessarily jobs for the people in the city. They're high-paying jobs for academics, for research people, for technical people, which is wonderful. And by the way... This is an area or a, or a group of people that will be very philanthropic yeah. on their own. Yeah. However, when you talk about, talk about 273 million, 
we need to really ask the question of whether or not these organizations really need the 273 million. Yeah, it's a it's now, a great question, yeah. Luis. It's a it's a wonderful question, and and it's where the the conversation probably should start, or at least near where it would start, which is why can't these companies or organizations or institutions do these things on their own? Now, now, James, I, I, I've had this conversation enough times with developers in the city to know that often it's actually not their choice to have to seek these kind of incentives. All developers use banks and other finance arms to make their projects happen. It's often the conditioning of those loans and how much they can be able to borrow that that puts them in the position of having to ask for these incentives in in the first place. So, yeah, we should be looking at these these very wealthy organizations and institutions and saying why can't they do this? But but one of the answers is the lending environment in the city. It's not just uh, that they don't want to 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 pay for their own projects. Uh, correct. You know, irrespective of bank demands, I would say even if that didn't exist, they would seek these um, tax subsidies anyway. because they're provided so frequently by the city. Like I said, you you would be foolish not to ask for them. You know, there and this isn't a problem solely in Detroit. It's it's everywhere. You know, you can find. I mean, it's an old New York Times story about Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri, and they would try to poach companies from each other and use tax incentives to do it. They you reach some type of a court of truce at some point, but this same debate happens all over the country. And so long as you find political leaders who are pressured to create opportunities for citizens and offer these types of tax, tax subsidies, they'll be granted. Um, you know, I, I feel like uh, one of the ways to, to to deal with this is, though, drilling down on that on that bank environment. It is still too hard for people, yes. especially small developers in Detroit, to get the money that they need to do their to do their projects. Yes, and it's likely only worsened for a handful of reasons. One of which is that interest rates are on the rise, so it is more expensive to borrow. And more to the point, because it is more expensive to borrow and that those interest rates affect banks themselves, they're less likely to lend. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, really appreciate the call and the comments. Let's go next to Kim in Detroit. Kim, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Um, so I just want to say, first of all, that taxes fund civilization. That's one thing. Mm -hmm. And every elected executive has a stuck up to the 1%. You have an army of people, lawyers and accountants, to do almost nothing but help them avoid paying what they owe uh, in taxes. And this is a fundamental contradiction that's really weighted against any municipality, but especially a black, majority black municipality like Detroit mm -hmm. that is, uh, um, has a too high of a poverty rate. Um, with regards to the illages and their, and their tax instead of things, and on, actually all of these folks, you know, Poor people and cities are always told to stay within their budget. So if we go back to your talk about the banks mm -hmm. and what they will and will not loan, why don't these people stay within their budget? <laughs> why don't they stay within their budgets instead of taking money from a city like Detroit that has been impoverished, that's been forced to bankruptcy, and the only way you can get it, the only way they say you can be developed, is to continue 
to suck up to some of the same forces that put you in this bad situation in the first place. Yeah. Uh, Kim, it, that, I, I, don't, I don't get it. It's totally it, bizarre. It's a great question as well. Um, uh, uh, James, this, this idea again of uh, – developers being able to do things on their own. Now, Kim raises an interesting idea, which is perhaps maybe some of these developments should be smaller, right? Maybe the investment should be more manageable so that they don't need as much of an incentive and maybe the banks would be more willing to to loan on a, on a scale like that. I think that's a question worth worth addressing. You know, that's that's an individual decision made by each developer. I'll, I'll say this, in some respects, Detroit is development dependent. You know, if you look at the taxable value of the city, unlike a lot of other cities, commercial taxable value exceeds residential commercial, uh, taxable value. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about 30% in the city of Detroit, residential value. It's about 60% if you look at Ann Arbor and Grand Rapids. And the city puts out this long-term forecast and it's trying to push out as far as it can the point at which expenses exceed revenues. And the way that it does that, at least you know, in its own words, is that it incurs more and more development. And you spoke to this calculus earlier that the majority of these tax abatements abate property tax. The city sees it to some extent that it'll recoup the cost, the foregone revenue, on the income tax side. And that equation doesn't always necessarily work out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, James Tatum of the Citizens Research Council. It's really great to have you here for this conversation about uh, tax packages and incentives and abatements. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Our assistant producer is Maddie Boyer. Our music is by Sam Bobian and sessions and podcast editing is by David Lyons. Our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WDET in Detroit, and you can support the show by leaving a rating or a comment. Thanks for listening.